Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I have relieved myself and we are now joined by our main event. Lark, how are you doing? Good morning. Thank you for joining us all the way from New Zealand, my friend. Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we first started uh, potentially talking about having you on. And I'm going to start off uh, right away. What is the difference in your mind between Bitcoin and crypto? Bitcoin and crypto is an interesting conversation because really what we talk about Bitcoin being the inception of this entire wild experiment that has since just morphed into everything you can imagine is now happening in crypto. The new use cases coming out basically daily. But in the background of all the insanity of the new startups, the new blockchains, the, the NFTs, all the craziness going on, you just have Bitcoin. And it's just there every 10 minutes, tick. Tick, 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 putting out blocks, continuing being basically the best censorship resistant money in the world. And obviously at a time like now, it's really uh, showing why it is so important. You know, um, it, I was just thinking actually in the shower as I was uh, get, thinking about our conversation here, I was thinking, you know, it's so funny what you see right happening right now, like in Eastern Europe, people are not turning to altcoin number 500 on the coin market cap list when they're looking to get money out of a country or escape capital controls. They go to Bitcoin, and that says a lot about what you need to know about the difference between Bitcoin and uh, altcoins, right? No, I mean, to your point, too, and I'm kind of curious your thoughts. We see Ukraine, like that tweet that they sent out with their Bitcoin address, as well as an Ethereum address, is a historic moment in just global financial history. Like, we will always look back, and I can see a world where my kids read a textbook with that tweet as an image and discussing what it really meant and what events it triggered. However, now we've seen them now start accepting Dogecoin. And for a moment, they rug pulled on the idea of accepting NFTs. At what point does that line start to become a little hazy? And now we start to have to ask ourselves, okay, what's going on here, guys? You're a little too disorganized. I think for a situation like the Ukrainian government's um raising funds to basically crowdfund their, you know, one, the humanitarian effort reliefs, but also be the, the ongoing uh, uh, defense of the country. It's a very, very interesting conversation because obviously it is an incredibly historical moment. I mean, if you told me last year that, uh, you know, Ukraine was going to be crowdfunding their defense using crypto, I would have said, you're crazy. Well, you know, I guess anything's possible in crypto, right? But um, it it's certainly is possible since 2020. Absolutely. Sorry. But but I think that... Um, one of the interesting things about it is you have to understand they're willing to take money from basically anywhere, right? Any help that anybody can provide. So when it comes to, you know, accepting Dogecoin or anything else is basically, if you got it, give it to us, we're going to convert it and, you know, use it to, um, to do that. And, and look, in terms of, um, you know, a country fundraising, it makes sense to actually take as many coins as possible. Because you had, for example, uh, I think it was Gavin Wood, the founder of Polkadot. He came in and said, well, if you guys accept Polkadot, I'm going to, you know, donate $5 million. And he did to his credit. Um, but he didn't want to sell the Polkadot first and then uh, donate because he'd be hit with a massive tax um, burden, right? So that ability to um, directly donate is important in a wide variety of currencies. So it is important to see that. Now, there's a big difference, of course, between a nation state crowdfunding um, versus your average citizen turning to how can they store their wealth? How can they get their wealth abroad? 
right? Big difference in those two conversations. Let, let's dive into that. Let's sort of dissect, because we're also at the same time as watching Nation States crowdfund. We saw this morning a city out of Switzerland uh, now t- turning Bitcoin into legal tender. El Salvador famously did the same thing last year. We've seen rumblings out of Russia for the weeks leading up to this Ukraine invasion. Um, where, like, obviously, it is very instrumentally important for individuals to have access to their funds. I think that is the core purpose as to why Bitcoin was created, so that what money you make stays there. No one can take it from you. No one can manipulate it. No one can fuck with your money. Um, Talk to us a little bit about sort of how these nation states behaviors is impacting the global Bitcoin, and I'll I'll allow this word, the global crypto market versus individuals putting their wealth. We've seen an influx as well on on on-chain analytics for Bitcoin in both Ukraine and Russia. Now, there's some very interesting things we've seen happening over the last few years. Um, this is a, a common theme that we, we touch on my channel, and that is the collapse of fiat currencies. And of course, everything that comes along with that, you know, it's it's the massive inflation, it's the government uh, capital controls that are coming in. And look, this is these are some of the exact things that we're seeing happening in Russia right now. You have to remember, everyone uh, is very quick to paint uh, every Russian citizen as the villain of the story here, but the reality is it's incredibly complicated, obviously, and most average Russians are not on board with what's going on, and a lot of those uh, young tech-savvy people are looking for ways to get uh, funds out of the country, at least to store their wealth, not in the ruble. The ruble has gone down uh, 40% in a week versus uh, the US dollar, just hit a new all-time high versus Bitcoin, and it's only going to keep collapsing as long as this Uh, conflict continues, we could be looking at some very serious economic consequences for the entire country of Russia with, you know, all the sanctions on import-export stuff, um, airlines potentially looking to collapse, we can see millions of people losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So what has the government done in response to all of this? They've put in very severe capital controls. Now, I think it was announced yesterday that any transaction changing uh, rubles into dollars or euros Hard currency is going to attract a 30% tax, which is insanity. They've also put in uh, capital controls on being able to send money overseas as well. So if you're a Russian citizen, all of a sudden, your options have just narrowed up a lot. If you didn't have dollars or euros or whatever um, you know, sitting under your bed, um, then you're in a pretty big uh, predicament right now because the government just made it nearly impossible for you to get money abroad. Imagine you're supporting your kids that are studying in London or something like that. And that doesn't have to be an oligarch, right? There's lots of you know, well-to-do middle-class families in Russia whose kids study abroad. That's a normal thing that everybody in the world does. And now it's really hard to send your kid money because your whole country was just cut off the SWIFT network. Their bank card may not work anymore. You can't send them money. If you want to get cash, you're getting hit with big fees. So here comes Bitcoin, the shining light in the darkness of all this insanity There is Bitcoin waiting for these people. All they need to do is get it, access it, and send it, of course, across. And it gets around all these capital controls. And this is not a new story, unfortunately. We're talking about Russia today, but I've covered the exact same thing happening in in Lebanon, in Nigeria, in Turkey, in Argentina. So many countries' fiats have gone to crap. And look, every single fiat currency is on a road to zero. Or, okay, maybe not zero, maybe it's minus 99.9999%, but almost zero, right? Whereas, look at the history of every single fiat currency 
versus Bitcoin over time. Bitcoin just keeps going up. Fiat currencies just keep going down the drain. And look, some of them do it more spectacularly than others. You know, the dollar is a slow bleed. 7.5% inflation is pretty dramatic, actually, but not as dramatic as what we see happening in some other countries um, where we just see critical fiat failure. To your point, I, I believe the numbers that we saw were uh, year over year in Turkey, it's over 52% inflation. My homeland of Iran over the last two years is seeing 92% inflation. God help the people down in South, South America dealing with it. But Argentina, Venezuela, the list goes on and on. And I go back and forth. Is it corruption? Is it the wrong people in charge? Or is it just this system was always doomed to fail? Historically speaking, we've seen us go from um, a gold-backed fiat currency to then going off of a just purely fiat system. That collapsing on a typical scale has actually been 50 years time, which is right around the time span we're at now. And yep. then you reverse back to this. So how do we break this mold or are we just going to re-enter a similar system? I opinion? think we are breaking the mold as, as we speak right now. And it's, it's a slow process. But the, the thing we have to realize about fiat currency failure is it's not the seeing you know the basket cases, Nigeria and Argentina and Russia and Turkey. They're not the exception. This is what people need to understand. Those countries aren't the exception. They're the rule. They're the rule. The exception is the currencies that haven't completely freaking collapsed yet. Those are the ones that are like, how did that not happen? Right. And sometimes you'll see good government policies that try to shore it up and actually have something backing, et cetera, et cetera. But that's rarer and rarer these days. Almost every fiat currency is on the exact same trajectory downwards. How do we create a new system out of this? We are creating it. It is being created. And I think we've seen an unimaginable level of adoption happened in just the last year. I've been blown away beyond belief at what has been happening. Ukraine's crowdfunding, the defense of their country using uh, Bitcoin and a wide range of cryptocurrencies. Uh, El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender. You'll notice they didn't make other cryptocurrencies. They didn't do Dogecoin, right? They went Bitcoin because of the security of the network, obviously. We see lots of other countries looking to pass Bitcoin uh, and crypto, a lot more broadly, often legislations. But we continue to see this new system being built by the very basket case countries often that have been suffering so hard from fiat failure. Sometimes they're forced into it, like Iran, for example, was forced into uh, Bitcoin because of the international sanctions regime. And they haven't adapted, uh, adopted crypto in a massive way yet, but they have done it. Venezuela, same thing. They were forced into it and it was there for them because Bitcoin, unlike dollars, unlike banks, unlike anything existing in the current financial system, doesn't care what your religion is, doesn't care what your nationality is, doesn't care what your politics, your gender, your political views, where you're from, what you think. It doesn't care about any of that stuff. It just processes transactions. Every 10 minutes, new blocks come out and nobody cares where that money goes. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. And, and when we started this conversation, you brought up something that I truly appreciated, which was the work in the history that went into finally giving us Bitcoin and then Bitcoin leading to everything else that we see and have now. We had attempts at different sort of protocols. Satoshi essentially combined four failed attempts into one masterful piece of art. Where has the delineation gone though? I personally ascribe, prescribe to the notion that Bitcoin's fundamental benefit over every other asset 
whether it's a cryptocurrency, whether it's a stock and equity, whether it's a fiat currency, is the decentralized nature of it. There's no individual, there's no company, there's no group that's going to turn around and say, all right, nope, it's actually going to be 22. Ah, you know what? We're going to make 30 million. Nope. Yeah. No, keep pump. Like, there's none of that. Vitalik could turn around tomorrow and say, you know what? E2, scrapping it. Nope. I'm going to do this update instead. So, how do we combat that? How do you like measure that risk with these other cryptocurrencies versus Bitcoin? I think we need to talk about really levels of decentralization. I think too many people look at decentralization as a black and white issue, right? It's either decentralized or it's not decentralized. And it's just simply not the case. There's always points of human failure along any branch of uh, any cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, right? We have to hope that the developers are able to spot bugs and stuff like this. And that is, for, for better or worse, a point of potential failure, right? That does have you know, 10 guys sitting in a room somewhere working on development, right? So it's the mo one of the most decentralized cryptocurrencies. But then we can talk about, for example, how, you know, the mining over time has started trending towards massive warehouses. And yes, it's globally decentralized, but it's also now, you know, pushing into a few big mining pools, you know, a few dozen guilds of big miners. So does that mean Bitcoin's not decentralized? No, of course it doesn't. But it, centralization versus decentralization is just not a clear-cut issue. Now, with some altcoins, for example, it's a pretty clear-cut issue on the levels of not being decentralized. But for something like Ethereum, for example, you know, it's, uh, it's not programmatic, right? And that's, I think, where the biggest criticisms come from the Bitcoin community that, well, because it's not already all programmed in, you know, it's not decentralized enough. I would say Ethereum's very decentralized, but we do have a core group of developers, not just Vitalik, right, but a core group of developers who do work on initiatives to enhance the protocol moving forward. The network itself, very decentralized with all the different nodes around the world. Those uh, proposals get pushed out, they get voted on, right? So levels of decentralization, again, what we're talking about here, and it, it really comes down to, I think, the question, if you want to get uh, into the technicalities, is... How much decentralization do you need? You see, from my random altcoin that I'm trying to flip, decentralization's not very important, right? I'm hoping that the number is going to go up so I can sell it to, you know, cash out, right? For storing my wealth, which is why Bitcoin, of course, is the number one asset that I own above everything else. It's, you know, the biggest asset that I own in not just crypto, but if we you know, zoom out, uh, gold stocks, all that stuff, Bitcoin is my number one by miles because... It's a storage of wealth for me. I feel comfortable leaving a significant proportion of my wealth sitting in Bitcoin in a way that I'd never feel comfortable doing, you know, with some low cap altcoin or something like this. So this is the kind of um, the benefits of decentralization is it allows me to sleep at night. I also do appreciate showing the spectrum of decentralization. I don't think anything in this world is black or white other than the colors black or white. And so like that, that is valid. However, Vitalik founded one thing that is truly incredible, truly beautiful, and that is Bitcoin Magazine. He founded something else that a lot of people do use, Ethereum. And I am still a little curious about you, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you still have a good size of your portfolio in Ethereum as well. Yeah, absolutely. How or why are you able to sleep at night as calmly with that percentage in Ethereum versus how much you have in Bitcoin? 
Uh, because I, I understand, uh, I think perhaps on a deep level, deep enough level, at least for my comfort, um, what Ethereum is and what Ethereum is trying to build and where Ethereum is going. And, you know, it's, it's a different, for me, I look at it as a different investment thesis versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin's the digital gold of my portfolio is the store of value in my portfolio. I look at uh, Ethereum as being like, you know, more akin to like a tech stock, right? But it's, it's a tech stock that captures a very broad uh, swath of what is happening in the entire crypto space, right? It, it, it's almost like a, a crypto index fund, if you will. Do you want exposure to the success of oracles in crypto? Buy Ethereum. Do you want exposure to NFTs? Buy Ethereum. Do you want exposure to decentralized finance? Buy Ethereum. Do you want exposure to the growth of stable coins? Buy Ethereum. Do you want exposure to, you know, the growth of random altcoin number 500? Probably buy Ethereum because it's probably built on Ethereum. As that's where we still the most um, projects still being built is of course over on Ethereum. So I look at it like that. Um, it's you know I think it's an incredible asset. Are there areas of you know criticism? Absolutely. The gas fees right now are crazy. It's become basically unusable for the average person. I think right now with the the state of the market, the gas fees have actually come down to you know vaguely human usable levels. But uh, once things kick off again, you're going to be paying hundreds of dollars to use uh, Uniswap, which is completely unacceptable. We do have layer twos taking off on Ethereum. In fact, I think we've seen a huge amount of innovation on the layer two space in Ethereum, right? So I know, obviously, uh, Bitcoin layer two is uh, there. You know, the Lightning Network is very important. Uh, we've seen other innovations at the layer two level with some different DeFi protocols, um, for example, playing around on, on Bitcoin layer two. But we see a huge amount of brain power and innovation going on Ethereum because of its more experimental network, right? Because of its, um, the sort of more open uh, attitude towards development and stuff like this. And that, again, if we talk about that conservative nature of Bitcoin and Bitcoin development, you know, it took us how many years to get Segwit? It took us how many years to get Taproot, et cetera, et cetera. That's a feature, not a bug, right? Again, we need to move slowly with Bitcoin and make sure that everything works perfectly, which is one of the reasons why we don't have all this crazy stuff happening because, again, Bitcoin store value, digital gold, all that fun kind of stuff. They're just fundamentally different assets. And to try to say, well, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're just the same thing, or you know, it's just basically the same thing. So this one's got you know, smart contracts and it's you know, slightly less decentralized than Bitcoin, really misses uh, the forest from trees, so to speak, when we talk about what these different assets are and what the investment thesis behind those different assets is. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yep. Yep. Yep.
I gotta say, man, I want to hate what you're saying, but I don't. Um, I I prescribe to, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm gonna I'm gonna I want to essentially re-say what your argument is in the way that I have digested it. My big push on Bitcoin when someone asks me about like, but like, what's it really worth? My argument always goes back to, well, there's too much money in it now. And it's not just like too much money from me or my friends or my dad or whatever. It's too much money from Wall Street, too much money from people who don't want to lose money. And Mm -hmm. as a result, that to me makes it feel like a safe, sound store of value. To, to your point, there is no, nothing, there are things, but nothing beyond really the Lightning Network on layer two that is a consistent use and uh, con- consistently in the zeitgeist for Bitcoin. Now, mm-hmm. flipping that over to the Ethereum argument that you made, where it's more of a tech stock, in the same vein where I say, well, there's too much money in Bitcoin for it to ever go to zero. There's too much, what you're essentially saying is there's too much built on top of Ethereum for it to go to zero. It may, whip around and whatnot. But beyond that as well, you also are coupling that argument where there's too much built on top of it for for it to go to zero with the age old argument that I fucking love, the old picks and shovels, where the gold miners back in the 1848, 1849, uh, all over California, coming over here to try to get rich mining gold. None of them really became rich. The people who became rich were the people who sold them all the equipment to get to go and mine for gold. Same with Ethereum. They are not saying <laughs> you're going to get rich on some DeFi token or whatever, or you're going to get rich sure. with this NFT. It's, hey, th- you need this to access that. But also like, if you just have this, you technically are touching that and that and that. Yeah. So I actually don't hate that argument as much as I want to. Um, I will. <laughs> if, I will pres- I, if I could just add, if I can add one thing Please. into about the, uh, the money that uh, behind Ethereum in a similar vein to your uh, thought on, well, there's so much money behind Bitcoin, it can't fail, right? I would say a very similar thing at this point with Ethereum, to be honest. We've got Bitcoin ETFs. Guess what basically the only other asset with an ETF product is? Ethereum, right? Look at Coinbase. Look at the volumes that they're doing on Coinbase. We've had multiple quarters now where Ethereum is doing more volume on Coinbase than Bitcoin, right? And as we know, um, Coinbase is a major destination for institutional buyers. So we have seen the institutional interest coming out. Kathy Wood has now added Ethereum to her uh, portfolio for ARK Invest, right? They're doing 60% Bitcoin, 40% Ethereum, which is one of the things that I kind of say from time to time to people, if you are busy, and you don't have time to go chasing, you know, all the random altcoins in the altcoin forest. You don't have the risk app, risk appetite for it. Importantly, obviously, because a lot of these coins do, you know, collapse horrifically. Um, some of them pump 100x, all that stuff. You got to take profits, et cetera, et cetera. If you just want to keep it simple and you want to get exposure to the best of the crypto space, look at what Kathy Wood did. Bitcoin, 40% Ethereum. That way you get access to the best hard money on the planet. You get that digital gold. You get the cryptocurrency that's most secure and not going anywhere. And you can also get access to basically the rest of the crypto market. Everything else going on, that's built on Ethereum, right? So if you're a busy investor, you can just buy Bitcoin. But if you're a busy investor wants a little bit of something extra, just buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. Those are the only two cryptocurrencies an investor would essentially need. And I got way more coins than that, obviously, but those are the only two that investor who's busy 
you know, doesn't have time to look at all this stuff, but they want broad access to the cryptocurrency space. I mean, those two coins together make up about 60% of the entire market cap of crypto. And if we take what is built on top of Ethereum, we're looking at like 75% of the entire cryptocurrency market. It's absolutely wild. I want to push back on one of the points you made in regards to sure. Coinbase. As, as someone who had invested in Coinbase, I still think I own a few shares here or there. Um, yes, there Quarterly reports have shown an influx of Ethereum. However, I would challenge that point in saying that tried and true Bitcoiners don't go to Coinbase to buy their Bitcoin. I myself do not. I haven't in some time. I think the last time I did make a purchase on Coinbase was about a year and a half ago. And it was only because it was such a large purchase that my fees on Cash App were going to be astronomical versus my fees on mm -hmm. Coinbase. Um, so with that kind of knowledge and then doubling down with the fact that right now we only have Coinbase in the publicly traded markets. Do, do you worry that, hey, should a Binance all of a sudden enter the publicly traded markets? Should Swan go public or Strike turn into a publicly traded company? Does that change sort of the metrics of what Wall Street is looking at as far as Bitcoin and Ethereum or crypto at large exposure? I mean, potentially. I mean, obviously, I think one of the reasons why we see uh, U.S. institutional players going to Coinbase because of the established reputation um, of the company, right? And I, I remember a very interesting statistic from uh, Coinbase that um, only 25% of the people who buy crypto uh, on Coinbase are Bitcoin-only investors, right? So there's 75% of people get into the altcoin forest, right? Whether that be they just buy Bitcoin and Ethereum or they're, you know, down there buying Dogecoin, you know, I don't know what coin number 500 on coin market cap is today, but I'm bashing the crap out of it. But that coin as well, you know, so we, we see that, but you have to remember, so maybe the, 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 you know, the OG Bitcoin community isn't really buying Bitcoin on Coinbase because the fees do suck. Let's keep it real. Uh, Coinbase, um, they charge about five times the fees even. So if you're using their card purchase service, the fees are absurd. If you're using their ex proper exchange with Coinbase Prime, is it? Or uh, Pro, Coinbase Pro. Pro. If you're using yeah. Coinbase Pro, it's still like five times the fees of Binance. So yeah, most people, you know, the OGs, the people who take a bit more time, they understand like, man, there's a lot of lost Satoshis. Why the heck would I buy there when I go buy somewhere else has got, you know, a fifth of the fees. But, but just because OG Bitcoiners are not buying there, you have to remember, new Bitcoiners are buying on Coinbase. People who are getting orange pilled, they don't have other options. Like if you're in New York, for example, you got almost no options on where to buy Bitcoin as an example. So it's a place where new Bitcoiners are being born. Like I personally don't like the idea that new Bitcoiners who are maybe not as well versed about the space, who maybe don't know enough about why Bitcoin even exists in the first place, are then exposed to a plethora of other options. And Cash, I mean, uh, Coinbase, to their point, does an excellent job with some of their educational content, explaining what this blockchain does, what this token is actually used for. They do an excellent mm -hmm. job doing that. I'm not knocking that. I, however, have a hard time telling my friends, oh, go to Coinbase, because it's just, in my opinion, it's too much and it will confuse a lot of people. And as a result, people will eventually say, oh, well, greed, greed drives everyone's motivations for the most part, whether we want to admit it or not. And if you're going on Coinbase at first, I'm just going to buy Bitcoin. But then all of a sudden you see the, hey, what, what's moved the most in the last 24 hours? What's moved the least? Mm -hmm. For the most part, Bitcoin doesn't really fall on those lists because it's not as volatile as Bitcoin is. It's not even as volatile as some of the DeFi's that are uh, offered on Coinbase. And then my second point to that is, and I'm, I'm using this statistic not as a 
not in a literal sense. So don't take my words literally here. However, there has been a consistent theme when a new token is introduced onto Coinbase. Shiba had a big run up. Doge had a big run up. Solana's ripping. Hey, Coinbase, Coinbase, we're offering it now. Come buy, make your next Doge purchase here on Coinbase. And almost consistently, the prices of these tokens, when they're introduced on Coinbase, crashes down. To me, that reads like a nice little pump and dump. The insiders know, hey, we're about to get listed on Coinbase. Let's really beef up our bags. And then boom, we're going to leave everyone else holding the bag. What are your thoughts on this? This could just be my opinion. These are all speculations for the most part. Coinbase listings do have that history. Um, The reality is, is that because so many people are simply stuck on Coinbase, when we do get you know, these altcoins uh, listed there, we tend to see big pumps. Um, I think this effect has been going down a bit with time because Coinbase has been listing so many altcoins. Um, but without a doubt, you do see these big exchanges. Same thing happens on Binance, by the way, when a uh, small altcoin gets listed on Binance, the price, the smaller the market cap, the bigger the pump happens as it uh, gets, you know, mega bought up. And is there insider information going on? Yeah, no, it's crypto, man, probably. You know, and uh, it, it's tricky with these smaller cap coins. The reason they can pump these things so much is simply because the market caps are so low of a lot of this stuff. You know, this is the thing of an exchange, of a new exchange. Let's, you know, not that they would do it, but let's say Swan Bitcoin uh, listed Ethereum, right? And they started selling Ethereum. That's not going to pump Ethereum by like 50% overnight and people aren't going to come in and dump because there's simply not the volume there because the asset's too big. But if they listed, you know, coin number 500, that could potentially cause that coin to pump, right? As an example. So as a thought there. No, I, I appreciate the thought. And, and uh, I'm messaging our producer. I'm like 95% sure that Swan actually does have an Ethereum uh, op, like option as well on their platform. Oh, right. I, I didn't know. I thought that but, was a Bitcoin. No, no, no. Yeah. Look, I, I'm not even 100% sure. I'll be honest. I don't use Swan. I yeah. fucking love Jack Mallers. He was here last week on the show. We had a great time with him. I am strike till I die ever since I got off Cash App. So <laughs> Jack... You're the man, dude. Nice. Um, talk to us a little bit about sort of what's going on with the SEC regulations. They're getting talked about a lot. Bitcoin is getting clumped into the whole crypto conversation. You know how I feel about that. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Obviously, you may not even give a, sh- or a rat's ass about American legislation in regards to crypto, and I understand that, but I do feel like it can have a global impact. Well, that's exactly the point. But what happens in the U.S. often has a reverberating impact around the financial world, right? They have um, key positions in most global financial institutions. So when it comes to what the U.S. does on a regulatory level, they have a strong ability to influence uh, a lot of other countries. You know, maybe not the major economies. They might cut their own path. But certainly when it comes to uh, smaller economies, the U.S. can push their financial weight around and say, well, this is what we did. This You should consider doing a similar thing. And especially if we were to see any sort of you know, negative uh, regulations come out in particular, that's when the U.S. I think would push and, you know, try to limit exchange access or whatever. Not that we have seen any of that kind of stuff happening, but um, I would say it's a very interesting conversation with the SEC because obviously they've established that um, Bitcoin is not a security quite a while ago. But the reality of a lot of the altcoins is that they are border either either dancing on the line of being a security or they're straight up a security, you know, and that's why um, U.S. exchanges don't list a lot of this stuff. And you got to keep it real with a lot of these altcoins. They're basically um, crowdfunding for company ideas, right? And that's what you're doing. You're investing in startups where you have absolutely no 
rights in the company, which is a very risky thing, obviously. A lot of the token models are very much security focused. The promises in the white papers are presented as securities. And so in terms of that, you know, the SEC is not completely wrong on everything that they're talking about, but they're also wrong on a lot of what they're talking about and they're overreaching and they're basically making it very difficult for, um, you know, the average U.S. investor in terms of uh, access to products, you know, because here's the deal, you know, you and I, we want to keep our Bitcoin on our hardware wallet, right? We don't want to leave it sitting. Uh, we don't want to have like a spot Bitcoin ETF. I don't know. Would you buy a spot Bitcoin ETF? No, neither Personally, would I. Personally but not. a lot of people would. But a lot of people would. This is the thing. A lot of people out there are not going to buy real Bitcoin. And that's unfortunate, but that's the reality of the world we live in. You know, part of um, part of all this is actually meeting investors where they are, right? We can have our hopes and dreams for, well, you should really only buy Bitcoin. But then they, you know, they start learning about crypto. Like, There's all this other cool stuff. Like, I like gaming, so I'm going to buy gaming coins. I, I like um, the idea behind Ethereum, so I'm going to buy Ethereum. I'm interested in the metaverse. Can I find some metaverse coins? And their interests go beyond simply a store of value. A lot of people want to speculate, right? And that's uh, there and available for them. The SEC has been a bad actor on so many levels. You look at, it's so funny because you look at, um, you know, who can invest in token sales, right? And it'll be, Everybody in the world except North Korea, Cuba, and the United States. Like every time, they're plumped in with those countries, right? And the SECs made it so the regular investors can't invest in token sales. And, you know, from a, I guess, a, a very Bitcoin-heavy perspective, you might say, well, you know, they're all going to be scams anyway. Maybe. But, you know, a lot of them aren't. And you should give regular investors the opportunity to invest in it anyway, because the reality is it's all just about keeping the poor, poor and the rich, rich. I, I saw the SEC is looking to um, increase the number of uh, money you need to have as an accredited investor from $1 million to $10 million. So only people with $10 million or more can invest in pre-IPO stocks, token sales, all this stuff. I mean, that's a scam. Give regular people the opportunity. That's what, that's essentially if you boil it down to the core, it's about choices, freedom, and opportunity. That's what Bitcoin was about. And yes, as uh, Bitcoin is the tip of the spear, but as an extension of all that, we have all this stuff happening across the broader crypto market. Let people speculate where they want. Let them do what they want. Let them, you know, invest in token sales. Get airdrops. I mean, come on. How many how many U.S. investors have been screwed by not being able to receive airdrops? It's crazy. Look, as someone who aspires to be an accredited investor and have my own VC firm, let me tell you, as someone who is not too far away, I was a stone's throw away from that qualification, and I am fucking furious. I, I can imagine. I curse way too much. I curse way too much <laughs> on this show. But let me tell you, like the other point, and I'm stealing this from, uh, you know what, fine. I see a lot of these comments, and I don't really care about it, but Shamal Palihapitiya brought up an excellent fucking point about this, where you need to open up the accredited investor pool. This is huge, an opportunity for people to make generational wealth by investing early in companies. Yes, it's less than one in 10 actually end up making it, let alone one in over a hundred, less than 1% actually become unicorn level companies. I respect and understand that. However, you're telling me I can go now and bet on who's going to win the NBA championship? <laughs> oh, or Take I can all your money on, down to the corner store and buy lottery tickets, man. Like what? 
<laughs> fuck off, SEC. And also, uh, to your point, too, are we really surprised that a bunch of lawyers with no real financial background, knowledge, or understanding who are making financial decisions are making the right or wrong decisions? Like, of course they're not. Of course they're making the wrong decisions about all of this stuff. I do want to really quickly just remind everyone watching Bitcoin 22 in Miami, April 6th through the 9th. It is going to be the bomb. Lark, are you going to be able to make it or are you going to be uh, stuck siloed off in uh, my favorite country in the world, Loki? <laughs> I'll be stuck in New Zealand during that time, but I hope you guys have a great time. Well, if your prime minister will let me, I hope to uh, spend my summer snowboarding down there for a little bit, but uh, nice. remains to be seen on that front. Uh, let me ask you a little bit. One of my favorite sort of things that happened over the last week, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. You, sir, have made me a lot of money. So thank you, Elon. Um, I have a theory about him, and I think it was confirmed last week that this dude just doesn't care. He doesn't really care about what goes on in the world. But he really does care about how he's perceived just enough to allow people to influence him to do decisions such as paying taxes, such as opening up Starlink to Ukraine. What are your thoughts on Elon's just impact on Bitcoin, on Doge, on just the global crypto market right now? I think one of the interesting things about Elon that not a lot of people maybe always account for, but he is one of the world's biggest influencers, right? I mean, beyond his, him as a CEO, right? He's an influencer who understands how to influence. And, you know, whether his opinions are swayed by the crowd or whatever else goes on, he's a very savvy marketer. And he understands internet culture. He understands meme culture. He understands new technology. And he's got what? I don't know. Tens of millions of followers over on Twitter. He's a big, big influence on markets overall, which is exactly why when Elon tweets about Dogecoin, Dogecoin always pumps. <laughs> so yeah, he's, no. a big, he's a big powerhouse guy. It, I, I like that argument that he is an influencer more than an entrepreneur to a or at least to a degree he has become that. Um, yeah. Is there He's any playing both roles, right? He plays both roles very excellently, man. I I definitely would have gone and taken an island once I sold PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> um, he just can't, he can't help himself, man. He's got to do stuff. He's got that busy mind, right? He's I can't imagine Elon being the guy who's like, ah, I'm just gonna go lay on the beach. He's like. I got all this money. I can build a rocket company. Let's do it. And I can build a car company. Let's do that. That'll be exciting and fun and give me, you know, somewhere to put all my energy, you know? No, absolutely, man. I, I, I love the hustle and ambition of that man. And I look forward to uh, what he will continue to build um, to, to the point of just influencers and celebrities within Bitcoin and even other cryptos at large. I'm less familiar with those beyond, I don't know, a Shiba Inu literally being like, in my opinion, the hottest dog to own right now, if you're a Doge or Shiba Inu <laughs> token holder. Um, but Bitcoin, we have our celebrities. We have guys like Michael Saylor and Jack Dorsey really pushing the ball forward. Is there anyone in this big, in, on that list of Bitcoin celebrities that you look to and you're like, hey, what they're doing is really influential and in pushing the ball forward? And is there one that you're kind of like, yo, take a back seat, like, let, let this other guy push it forward? <laughs> um well, I would say that in terms of, I don't know about the, the backseat guy, but I, would, I definitely say in terms of who's got a really positive impact, and I think has been just an incredible advocate uh, for Bitcoin is um, Michael Saylor, right? I, I really think that he, I mean, we want to talk about Elon Musk and Tesla buying um, Bitcoin. That was sweet, right? But 
how'd that even happen? It's because Michael Saylor did in the first place. And Michael Saylor talked to Elon, got on a call with him probably, and, and sat down and said, yeah, here's how you can buy Bitcoin for your company. So he's been an incredible advocate um, in terms of being a big voice in the space out there regularly representing Bitcoin and doing it in an articulate way and doing it in a way that really speaks to a broad audience of people, as well as very specifically, I think importantly, to the institutional investor crowd, to the corporate crowd, holding, he's just held his second um, annual, you know, Bitcoin conference thing where he basically step-by-step -step guide on how a corporation can buy Bitcoin. That stuff matters. That's a massive advocate right there. And so I think he's been doing incredible work. So love that. And we are uh, huge fans of Sailor here as well. We're at Bitcoin Magazine. I want to sort of, before we wrap things up with you, uh, I do want to maybe ask you, what led you down the path of other tokens? What, what took you to the dark side? The dark side. Well, I don't see it as the dark side necessarily, but um, what, what um, I guess really was interesting for me with things beyond Bitcoin was my interests beyond Bitcoin. You know, I look at Bitcoin as digital gold, great store of value, you know, strong political money, all this stuff, right? But other stuff's cool too. This is just kind of really what it comes down to. Gaming's cool. I, I like, you know, speculating on gaming coins. Um, metaverse stuff, that's cool. DeFi, awesome, interesting. I love playing around with it. It's, it's fun to play with. It's fun to farm tokens. Like I enjoy doing all that stuff. For me, it's just the experimentation, um, the ability to just play with these different fields of things. It's like with my, my stock portfolio, right? I don't just invest in gold, right? I also like renewable energy. I like electric vehicles. I like tech stocks, right? So Bitcoin's got a very special place in my portfolio, but I like playing around with other stuff. I, my interests go beyond um, just Bitcoin, even though I love Bitcoin. It is the number one uh, coin that I own, but I like other stuff too. And I just want to make one uh, quick point before we finish up here. And you brought it up interesting with the startup uh, failure rates and stuff like that. And I think that's one of the big things that trip people up when they come into the altcoin space. They think that they're um, investing in like, you know, established companies, so to speak, right? When they, when they invest in some of these new altcoins, they're like, oh, well, this is going to be like, you know, they're talking about doing this, this thing. So they must just be like, you know, investing in, you know, uh, one of the big gaming company stocks or something like that. It's nothing like that at all. It's super speculative. The failure rate in crypto for altcoins, it's, you know, 90%. It's similar to the startup world and you are investing in startups. So you have to take that mentality. This is a startup. There is a high chance of failure. And I think that's what probably trips up so many people who invest in altcoins. They really don't understand that a lot of these coins are going to fail, but then you're going to have the unicorns. You're going to have the ones that go absolutely crazy and provide big returns. So it's trying to find the needle in the haystack, so to speak. But if you don't have time to find the needle in the haystack and to deal with all the drama, just buy Bitcoin. Keep your life simple. It's going to get, it's going to go to a million dollars guys. So, you know, you can just buy it and chill. You heard it here, guys. Crypto Lark even telling you, buy, just buy Bitcoin. Just stack sats every day. And chill. Stack sats and chill, man. Used to be a way of life around here in crypto land, man. Now everyone's just, you know, chasing dog coins. Everyone needs to just take a deep breath and chill. Um, yeah, I also get a little chill, bit of man. flack sometimes. Like I, I came up as a, a stock investor just like on the side. I would have my nine to five job that was longer than nine to five, but I would still be investing in stocks at the same time. And that's sort of what led me down this path of Bitcoin. Um, 
I definitely get some flack for it from time to time when I'm not 100% in Bitcoin. But you know, when when you lose everything being 100% in something, you can never make the same mistake twice, as I like to say. So, uh, Lark, I want to give you the opportunity to let our people who maybe aren't as familiar with you know where they can find more information about you. Uh, the best place probably is to come over and find me on either Twitter or YouTube. I'm posting videos all the time on YouTube and you know sharing my thoughts about. Uh, Bitcoin, the wider crypto market, the macro scene, all that fun stuff um, over on Twitter as well. So come find me there and, you know, hear some more of my thoughts. Be happy to see you there. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to have to bother you to have you come back so we can continue some discussions, maybe over some charts and really dive into some of these equity side of things since uh, I, I think we can have a lot, a lot of fun dissecting some of these ETFs that are going to be coming out over the next few months as well. Sounds like fun. Awesome, Lark. I will let you get back to it, man. Be safe out in New Zealand. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Bye. Yep.